The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. Wall Street, Capitol Hill, the boardroom. There are all kinds of workplaces that can be terrible for stress or more extreme mental health disorders. But there's one in particular that seems to be carving out not just more and more of our economy, but more and more of our headspace, our zeitgeist, certainly our media coverage, startups. You know, when I coined the term entrepreneurship porn in HBR in 2014, I honestly didn't think too much about how our obsession with business legends, highs, lows, and near misses sugarcoats and even glamorizes anxiety and poor mental health, and certainly glamorizes habits that can lead to poor mental health, like never sleeping. What these stories mask is the anxiety and depression many entrepreneurs feel. Some research even shows that the singular focus and obsession many entrepreneurs have also inclines us to more anxiety and depression, which can then impair our function. And the thing is, think to yourself how many legendary stories you know of entrepreneurs who almost lost everything, who were saddled by debt, near ruin, but triumphed in the end. Those are great stories and they're inspirational. But I always think of the tremendous toll their mental health must have taken throughout all of that, up and down and not knowing. Today's guest, Emma McElroy, is going to tell us her unvarnished and very real, funny version of her entrepreneurship journey, which includes some really tough stuff with mental health. Originally from Ireland, Emma spent time at Barclays and Nike after getting her degree from the University of Cambridge. And then in 2013, she ventured out on her own to start the clothing brand Wildfang. Emma has been outspoken about mental health issues in the workplace, especially when it comes to the startup and entrepreneurship space. I started by asking Emma whether talking about these issues in public made her ever worry whether in a boys club kind of startup world it could hurt her professionally to do so. I guess my first question is, um, you're a CEO, you're an entrepreneur, you're a a woman in a field which can be very male-dominated. What made you start wanting to talk about mental health and work so publicly? I I love that you did, but I think it was was bold. Like, why did you start? I I pretty much go through life saying exactly what I think and feel. I try to show up as authentically as I can everywhere I I can. 
because I think there's a lot of stigmas that need to be broken. This is one of them. Um, and as a woman, there are many, many stigmas that surround us. Mental health, obviously, is, <laughs> is, is gender free. But um, I've talked publicly about it ever since I've become an entrepreneur because that's when it's affected me most. You know, the journey of being an entrepreneur is really weird. Um, you basically jump into this thing that you don't have the skill sets for, you don't have the experience for, and then you try to achieve almost impossible results and build something that no one's ever built before. So, you know, it's like when an unstoppable force makes an immovable object, right? It's just sort of set up for perfect disaster. Um, and one of the one of the disasters that falls out of it is normally your mental health. You know, so for me, I had a, I had a number of things that sort of highlighted it for me. Um, my co-founder left me in the second year with mental health issues. I was a part of a, a fund out of Vegas, a, an investment fund out of Vegas, where where, um, three of the people in the fund killed themselves. Oh my God. Uh, who were all m- more successful than I was, by the way. So, you know, it's it's an interesting thing when um, you look at people who are more successful than you and they kill themselves. That's sort of like a an interesting thing to take on board and to absorb. Um, and then um, probably two years ago, I had a, a, you know, pretty close to a breakdown myself just, just through uh, this journey that we go on and start up. So um, what I find is uh, when you talk about it, it gets better. And what I find is, uh, media in particular displays a really singular view of startup. Yeah. Um, they just they display the view where you get VC funding and you have a hockey stick up and to the right, and then you sell and make loads of money and you know fly around in private jets. And most people don't have that story. E- even the successful people, you know, I was speaking to someone who was pretty senior at um, Square recently, mm-hmm. um, and you know they were talking about obviously now most of us look at Square as this massive successful thing and. And they were like, whoa, no, it was it was a hell of a roller coaster ride to there. So I think the thing for me is I, I know behind the scenes in a number of what we would all deem to be successful companies. And uh, it is a real roller coaster ride. And it is really difficult, uh, particularly on the founder. And I just think until we start talking about that, more people are going to you know, drink too much or do something stupid and try to hurt themselves in some way. So I, I try to talk about it so that at least the other people who are doing what I'm doing feel a little bit more normal. Bill, exactly. You know, it's funny. I, I actually, I, I, I coined a term entrepreneurship porn for <laughs> exactly what you're describing because it is, it is, it's porn. It's glossy and it's fantasy and it's not real life uh, for any entrepreneur. And so I, I'm 100% with you. But, you know, for you, it's not like you were a slouch before you founded Wild Fang. I mean, you went to Cambridge, right? You were an athlete. You worked at some pretty big companies, had some pretty big roles. Had you experienced um, struggles with anxiety or depression or burnout before Wild Fang? Or was it just something about being an entrepreneur? Yeah. And I, I, I want to caveat, this is my story and this is personal to me. So I certainly don't speak on behalf of anybody else, but to sure. me, it was, it was directly connected with the journey into startup and entrepreneurship. It's, it's so different. It's so lonely. Um, the pressure is so high. You know, I built a brand, which I know how to do, but it was also an e-commerce company at its core. I'd never worked in e-commerce before. I, I knew nothing about merchandising or, um, QuickBooks or accounting or logistics or 3PLs or LTVs or CACs. I mean, I I knew nothing about any of that. And I jumped right into it and then immediately, you know, told a bunch of people who give me money that I was going to turn this into a very profitable business. So that that's like the highest pressure you can personally put yourself under. And I think, you know, everybody in a leadership team at a startup carries a lot of stress, but as a founder, it's, it's just, it's just different. The, The buck stops with you. And there's just a lot of pressure and a lot of pressure on every decision. And like I said, the most important thing is you actually don't have most of the time you don't have the experience or skill sets to handle it. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, it kind of is like setting yourself up, you know, to run through a gauntlet or to walk across a bed of fire. It, it, you know it's going to hurt like hell. And one of the places it hurts most is your, is your mental health. Did people tell you this before you did it? No, no, no. No one talks about it. It's no like one told you. Secret. Yeah, no yeah. one. And yeah, a big part of the problem, and I'm, you know, I'm going to go off on one, but a big part of the problem is media and startup. And I, I have a real problem with startup media. And I've, I've told most of them that, which probably reduces my ability to get coverage. But um, <laughs> we, we only tell one version of the story. We only tell the story of the people that we deem as winners. Mm-hmm. And we tell it in reverse. And there are two significant problems with that. When you don't capture it in real time and tell a real time story, and when you don't tell stories of people who may, inverted commas, not have been as successful, you you just lose so much of the truth and so much of the good stuff and so much of the learnings. The best people on my board, the best people on my advisory board are people who've had as many big exits as they've had big failures because they learn from the failures. And if you've never had any, you probably don't have that many you know learnings to share with me. If you've never been three days away from running out of cash, when I ask you what I should do, you probably don't have the answer, right? But yet none of none of these people said pulled you aside and said, hey, you may feel, you know, anxiety so bad that you can't breathe. You may feel X, Y and Z. No, because to do that is vulnerable. To do that is admit that you have felt it. And most people, you know, uh, the whole industry is fueled by venture capital funding. Mm. So it's, it's fueled by stories about how you're going to be the next unicorn every single person i've ever met has a slide somewhere in their deck that says we're going to be the next billion dollar brand even though you can count on two hands the number of billion dollar brands in the last five years right Mm -hmm. so you know everybody's telling this same story which we know is at least 20 if not 50 percent wrong if you come out there and admit any weakness or any vulnerability um you can pretty much kiss your capital goodbye right would you say that you're an anxious person or would you say that you have gotten anxious in the face of these huge challenges? Like, how do you how do you describe your mental health to other people as a as a founder? Um, I would say I'm not anxious at all. I'm mm-hmm. not an anxious person. Um, I've built tremendous resilience and capacity through this process. But as with most people who have built tremendous resilience it comes from very negative dark situations you don't build resilience by being in sunny happy places all the time that's literally not what resilience is um to have the ability to handle hard difficult things you have to have lived through hard difficult things but i would say that the journey has has broken me on every level physically mentally emotionally um a number of times and and that's a part of it right that's a part of you know i I come from sport like you mentioned when you build a muscle, you first tear it, right? That's how muscle mm-hmm. growth happens. Mm-hmm. You know, you you tear the fiber uh, and you rebuild it and it gets bigger and stronger. Um, and so it's exactly the same. It's just when you think about sport, we all are very comfortable with the idea of an athlete saying how difficult their workout was mm-hmm. or how brutal it was. or But we, we're just not comfortable with the idea of a, a CEO or a founder doing that yet. And and I think we need to be because once we're comfortable with it, it'll be okay to have those moments. You know, it's funny you say that because I was just reflecting. I, I really like um, Michael Phelps, you know, the famous multiple, multiple yep. Olympic gold winning swimmer actually has a campaign. I, I think he's working with a pharma company and he talks about his depression. Um and I was just, I was curious, you know, if your journey with athletes was similar to your journey with startup founders in this kind of singular focus that almost gives you an excuse not to focus on your mental health because you're just focused on winning. You're just focused on getting stronger. 
Yeah, I think there are definitely comparisons. Um, my brother was a professional athlete, um, so I, I went through that journey with him. Um, I, I ran for my country. I played various sports for Ireland. Um, wow. I would say the hardest part for most athletes, there's, there's two really hard things. One is um, retirement is really hard. You know, mm-hmm. you lose your identity, you lose who you are. But within the fight itself, which I think is maybe, because I think that's maybe more akin to bankruptcy or losing your business. But I, I think you know, within the fight, there's definitely a, a comparison um, to things like overtraining syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when an athlete overtrains and, and, and is feeling tired all the time and therefore is feeling guilty about not training and feeling like, um, you know, they're not as strong as they should be or they tell the world they are, you know, and actually the only treatment for something like overtraining syndrome or most injuries is rest, right? Mm. Um, in that sense, it, it, it's similar to a, a founder's journey. For me, I, I had to learn to take, you know, it would take an awful lot to get me to show up in the office on a Saturday or Sunday night. That that used to be my MO. That was like just the jam. You work seven days a week. Um, now I'm very, very protective of Saturday and Sunday. I'll work till midnight Friday night and I'll get up early Monday. But I've, I've just learned that, you know, self-care is not a, a fuzzy, a fuzzy term. It's really critical part of, of the performance plan. Absolutely. And we understand that more for athletes, right? We do. We accept that. But but I've never heard a startup founder say that they sleep, except Ariana Huffington, but I don't believe her. Yeah, well, it also doesn't help. This is my point about media. It doesn't help whose stories we tell, you yeah. know? So I don't mean to call out people, but, you know, I got really upset when I read an article by uh, Marissa Meyer, who is the, the, you know, probably one of the most successful women in the world, CEO at Yahoo. Um, she said, and, you know, I wasn't in the room for the interview, so maybe she was misquoted, but she said, um, I can tell which startups are going to make it or not based on walking into their office on a Saturday and seeing, you know, how many people are there. And I just think mm. w- when that's the story that we choose to tell, it sets a tone, you know, it sets a tone. So why would anybody ever tell the story of, hey, I broke last month and, you know, considered taking my own life or had suicidal thoughts, so now I take Saturday and Sunday off. Like, why would you tell that story when, you're listening to probably the most powerful person in your space say that they can immediately tell if you're successful based on whether you're in the office on a Saturday, Sunday. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
So, so can we talk through? I, I don't know if it's okay to talk through your dark times, like how you felt that you've built resiliency. Can can you talk us through a moment where you felt I'm going to break, or or you and your co-founder both felt that way, and 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 what happened? Yeah, typically the biggest problems a finder faces come down to two things: it's either money or people. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, when those hit together, you know, you get the double whammy of all possible stresses and those problems tend to be not easily solved uh it's probably just over two years ago um uh i was in new york and i was closing a series a round of funding and the way fundraising works is um you know your lead uh investor sets the terms and then everybody else has to put their money in first um before the lead will commit um and so if you don't you know i think in that case it was a two and a half million dollar round or so 2.2 million dollar round and so i had to get you know 1.2 in the bank before the the lead would release their capital and it was 36 hours before funding deadline and i had to fly to new york to go to a friend's funeral um she was 40 and she died of a brain tumor Mm -hmm. um and the night before the funeral, I got a phone call from a small fund um, in Utah who had multiple times verbally and an email committed to $250,000 of funding mm-hmm. who pulled out. Mm-hmm. So you can move the deadline. It's just, um, firstly, it gives everybody cold feet. Like, why couldn't you close it? What yep. I, I want to look at the numbers again. Like, what's going on? Did I miss something? Uh, it's just like a really bad thing to happen in that sort of proximity to a deadline um and then in addition to that one of my most senior team members quit um and give me no notice so at this point uh you know it was a thursday night i had to go to a funeral on the friday and i have 24 hours to find two hundred fifty thousand dollars. and so that that was a really really bad 24 hours for me um Mm -hmm. it just was a super dark uh weekend in new york for me and uh you know to give to give you the end of the story, I, I raised the money. I, I got the round closed in time, but I got really sick afterwards. So it, it, it wasn't like a hero's journey of like, yes, I did it. It was more like, a, oh, my goodness, I lived through the eye of a cyclone and, and I'm not sure if I still have all my limbs. My health really took a toll. Um, I stopped being able to sleep for a while. Oh, um, so, uh, yeah, I just I, I just couldn't. It wasn't even I don't even know if I describe it as insomnia. I just. Uh, there was just like a general baseline of anxiety that I couldn't sleep. And then I started to have gastrointestinal problems. So um, I started to get really bad um, lower abdominal cramps. Um, mm-hmm. And basically, the fast version of it is that my stomach stopped working and my um, small intestine stopped <gasps> working. So I couldn't, like, I had to change my diet. I couldn't work out, which is kind of the only thing that really keeps me sane, to be honest. Um, and I just got to a really dark place between like, not really being able to eat, not really being able to sleep, and then like just kind of constant pain, um, and started to you know really feel like um, not only was I incapable of the job, but I, I just wasn't really capable of much. I wasn't really value add anywhere, mm-hmm. um, and so and then I, you know the, when you get to these low places, then all the environmental stuff like not sleeping and not eating makes it even worse. Um, and so, uh, I hit a pretty big reset in my life. Uh, it, it was about three months before I hit rock bottom and I, I hit a pretty big reset. Um, and there were a few things that helped me and I, I, it certainly wasn't, you know, for anybody listening with a similar story, it, there was no band aid ripped off fix. It was a very long, very slow fix, um, a very non-sexy fix. 
the first change I made was um, I pulled my leadership team together and I started to really talk to them about what was going on with me and really share. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people might say overshare. How long had this been going on before you decided, I have to tell these people, I have to be honest, I have to go there? Yeah, probably four months. Mm, Okay, that's a long time. Yeah, it's not great. Um, And so I'd been in a place where I felt like, you know, your CEO, your founder, like, this is yours, you figure it out, like, Right. All these people have a job to do. They have to make product or they have to run finance and ops. So they, they don't have time for your story. Like you adding additional pressure to them of your stress is not going to improve their performance, you know. Mm. And what I found was pretty remarkable when I opened up to them. Um, two things happened. Firstly, they were incredibly positive in their reaction because they had felt that I was distant and almost hiding things. That's not the right word, but... Mm-hmm. Um, they 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 felt like it was almost um, manipulative or negative um, wow. when actually it was protective. So they felt much closer to me and much higher trust based on the fact that now they had context for why I looked terrible and wasn't performing at my best. <laughs> and then secondly, they felt empowered to help me fix it because they you know they believe in me, they want to work with me, they love me, and they they believe in the mission. Um, and so. That was really cool. So just in small ways, um, they were able to help shoulder the stress of some of these situations, um, which I hadn't expected, you know, because as far as I was concerned, these were my problems and I had to deal with them. So the first big point was kind of just being a little more honest and 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 open with uh, the people closest to me and and being like being really careful about who I let in, but but nonetheless letting those people in. And then there's some really practical stuff for me. So like I said, I, I decided that uh, weekends were were non-negotiable. Um, I'd done at that point, I'd done four, four and a half years of 80 to hundred hour weeks. And, Mm. um, I, I realized that actually quality is, is how I create the big wins, not, um, not hours at a desk. Um, and if I'm not, you know, when I'm happy, I can deliver 150%. And when I'm really sad and depressed, I can deliver 70%. So it's just not even a question. So I, I just started saying no, I started saying no to lots of stuff and, and being really particular about, like really observant and kind of, you know, Buddhist, if you like, about what fills me up and what doesn't and the people who fill me up and the people who don't. And I think another thing that most early stage finders feel is kind of imposter syndrome, right? So you feel like, you know, you're the least important in the room and you're like not doing a very good job as CEO and you're not there yet. And, And so it's very hard to say no to people and people that might be important, but they aren't going to deliver the milestones or objectives that are right in front of you. But to say no to them requires a lot of self-worth because you have to be like, no, actually my time is better spent somewhere else and with someone else. Um, and that just takes time. It takes time to where you're brave enough to be able to do that. And then the last big thing for me is exercise. Um, when I exercise, I can just handle a lot more. Yeah. Um, things don't affect me as much. Um, and then the last big thing um, is my faith. You know, my faith has been super important to me um, to get through some of this stuff. Religion. Yeah, I'm... Um, you know, I'm in I'm in a very small Venn diagram of queer Christians. So, um, yeah, it's it's great because both communities sort of hate each other. So, um, you know, you don't have many people to talk to about that. But yes, I am I am a Christian, and it's super important to me. And um, uh, yeah, it's helped me through some of the worst periods. It it sounds to me, Emma, though, that a lot of a thread that you were describing is loneliness, that you <laughs> you were lonely as a founder and you felt that you had to shoulder this tremendous burden all alone. 
yeah, it's the loneliest thing you'll ever do. Uh, and no one, people, people, you know, there's catchphrases like lonely at the top or, but it, it's not it, like when people say lonely at the top, like there's a big difference, you know, if you're making a million plus dollars a year with an assistant and a car and great healthcare and, you know, it's a, it's a very different journey when you take no income for a year and a half. Um, you're living off whatever you've got left in savings. You've downsized into a basement studio apartment with, you know, one room and no windows. Um, and you can't do any of the stuff you used to do. People are like, do you want to go out for a beer? And you're like, if you come to my house with the beer, yes. Um, so, you know, life just changes real quick. Um, uh, and it, it's, being lonely at the top when you have an awful lot of privileges and money is one thing. And then being lonely at the top when you don't really have much is another. So yeah, it's, it's tremendously lonely. It's lonely even with your team, because like I said, there's stuff that you shoulder that they won't, you know, like I've taken out millions of dollars of personal guarantees. You put it all on the line, you know, and with that just comes a different kind of stress and pressure. Um, you're, you're lonely within your relationship. You know, I've lost, I've lost numerous, um, partners, because of wildfang, I would say, um, because it creates a real, I mean, it just creates massive stress on your relationship. And it also, um, you know, it's hard to come home every night and talk about hard things. Like you start to not really be a person that people want to be around. Right. Like, um, it's, it's, it just creates a lot of loneliness, even within a relationship. So is it still worth it? What keeps you going and where are you at now? I think you have to ask that question a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's like the Steve Jobs commencement speech at Stanford, right? Like um, if you look in the mirror too many days and it's not worth it, then you, you got to step out. I had a really interesting, my my um, my ex, Sarah, and I were together for about four and a half years. And um, watching her journey was really interesting where she went from not really feeling, you know, feeling like wildfire was, was mine and not hers to them feeling like, wildfang was also hers and she was a big part of its success because of her relationship with me and then getting to a point where she was like I need I want to pull you out like I need to know when I I get to pull you out because I'm really worried about what it's doing to you so um watching that journey with her was was really eye-opening for me um to watch somebody actually be scared for you because of how much you put yourself through um because you're too close to it to see that. So, well, I mean, it is worth it for me. Wildfang, the highs are higher than the lows. Um, and they're, you know, they, they ultimately outweigh them. And I, I'm, I'm a mission-based person. I believe in, in what Wildfang's doing. I, I believe we are making the world a better place and we're changing how women get to show up. And, and that's sort of what I've decided to do with my life. But I think you start to be more precious about what you will and will not compromise on, you know, like I was saying to you about weekends or, or things like that. So, um, I don't know if I could ever do again what I did for the first two years. I think that's probably a no. But I, I am in a place now after six years where I do feel like if, you know, if there came a point it wasn't worth it for me, I'd be able to have that conversation with my board and investors and, and my leadership team. Um, because the, the bottom line is, and, and I always say this to staff, I mean, even outside of the conversation of mental health, if you don't want to be there anymore, like you should go like it. It's not worth it anymore for anybody because you can't do your best work if you don't want to be there. Um, and everyone feels it um, and it changes the culture and everything else. Oh, my God. There's so much I want to say to that. I mean, first of all, I, I want to say thank you because I, I think that, that you've also just bust through another sort of myth of the mythical founder, you know, which is that you you are, you know, sort of 
questing for this holy grail and you'll give up at nothing. And I think that a lot of us, I myself also not as a, as a startup founder, but as a small business owner, you know, sometimes it just gets exhausting. And it is exhausting to everyone around you and also to your own head to run on these loops of, am I going to make payroll? How are my vendors feeling? I mean, it's like an endless loop. And I can I can so relate to the feeling sometimes of just saying, I just need to stop it. I need to stop this conversation in my head because it's been going on too long. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to say, though, that when I saw you, I first heard you speak, and, and I'm so grateful you came onto this show because I respect your boundaries. You sh- you talked about your the jacket that you made in response to Melania Trump. Yeah. And how you really do care. And um, you talked about making blazers with pockets in them. And <laughs> <laughs> and you were authentic and you were yourself and your very authentic presence touched me deeply. And I know it does for your customers. And the highs, I can imagine, are like a drug. They keep you fueled, don't they? Yeah, of course they do. That, you know, the highs are why you do it. I, I will say, though, that once uh, there were two things that popped up while you were talking. The first is like this idea of quitting because it's too much. Like what I've learned as I get more senior into my leadership is nothing's really black and white. Um, and so it's it's not really like in the same way that you don't have these big black and white wins. You know, the wins start to get more complex and more things go into them and more people are involved. Uh, you know, it's kind of similar with the challenges like anybody who's feeling anybody who's listening to this right now and is feeling, you know, super depressed or dark about the situation they're in, in a startup or with their work. Like I, I just encourage you to talk about it because it's not, it's not like a black and white, throw your hands up in the air, walk out the door. It's, you need to really analyze the situation and, and figure out what it is. It's not making it worth it anymore. And then figure out how to shift those responsibilities to someone else, how to hire differently, how to change your role. Like, does it become part-time? Do, do you become, you know, a board member? Do you, like, it's it's not like, I, I think sometimes what really messes us up with mental health is everything feels so black or white, right? Yes. Like, I need to exist or not exist. I need to kill myself or be here. I need to quit or start. I need to, you know, and, and it's actually not, there's lots and lots of gray. And I think, remembering that it's lots and lots of gray and remembering that you may not be able to see the solution, but the other people you invite into the problem with you may be able to chip away at the solution with you. Like that's been critical for me, you know? So if I'm feeling that way, like talking to the leadership team, talking to my board, talking to some of my key advisors or investors, I'm figuring out how 10% here or 10% shift there can suddenly just allow you to breathe again, you know, and starts to make the situation better. I, I thank you for saying that because because that wasn't my intention. And I think you're right that we do. And, and we and we get to that point, all of us, not even just founders, where we're like, I'm just going to throw it all away. I'm going to go live on totally. it. But one of the things also for listeners who aren't founders, but are feeling also like they're going to take this job and shove it is, you know, Callie Yost, who I talk about a lot, who's a mentor to me, said that she sees people quit when they haven't even asked their boss for a small change, like being 100%. able to work from home for one day a week. And so our tendency when we're overwhelmed and stressed and miserable is to shove it. But I love your point about getting out of your own head and asking for help and making changes because no one wants to see us leave and they want to help. And that's the point of your story before is that people stepped in to help you. They wanted to once you asked. Well, you also have, once you get to, you know, 
I remember I went through a really bad breakup. You know, it's my first big love. And I went through a, a terrible breakup. And I I phoned my one of my very wise best friends, Agatha. Um, and I phoned her and said, oh, I'm, I'm just going to fly out there and, and ask this person to marry me. And she was like, okay, hold on one second. All I will tell you is you should never make a big decision from a place of darkness and sadness. Like, you just shouldn't make that. If you're going to ask someone to marry you, you should be making it from a very positive, stable place. That is a huge decision, you know. And it just stuck with me, the idea of making giant decisions from a very dark place. And and, and the reason is because when you're in those very dark places, your, your view is so obscured. What you can see is so wildly obscured. And, and you don't have the full picture and so when you when you share that with other people that you trust and you get their input their ideas their recommendations what you start to do is get the whole picture but you know it's almost like you know at the end of a movie when it when the screen sort of disappears to this one little dot in the middle you know when Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like when you're in that really dark place whether you're depressed or anxious all you really have is this pinhole view um, just because your systems have all shut down, you know, you're not at your best and you don't, you don't have the ability to take in the full picture. And so what other people do is start to pull that back and just give you a, a little bit more of, uh, of a picture. And in other words, you, you can't see the solution from where you're standing. Um, it, it's just too hard. And so it takes a lot of trust and a lot of vulnerability to invite other people into that, but often they can see even 10% of a solution that, that you couldn't. I love that. Um, my last question for you is about, it's about creativity, because your brand is so wildly creative. And I'm curious if in all of this work that you've done to give yourself space and boundaries and not feel like you're losing your mind all the time, have you also learned how to create a space to be creative? Like, how does a founder stay creative and visionary while they're juggling all these balls and just trying to keep their head above water well i think it's about um with all this stuff actually that creativity is kind of part of it like i th- i think about it more like energy like where does your energy come from and i think what you have to do as a founder um it's kind of back to my point earlier about learning what to say yes to and what to say no to like i think you have to really think about what fuels you and what gives you energy um and where you know, where that comes from for you. And that's different for everybody. You know, even if I think about my chief creative officer, Tarlene and myself, um, the drive, the motivation, the energy of what we both do, and we've both been doing wild science for six years, it comes from different places. So for me, I'm very, very driven by our consumer and our consumer's experience. I'm very, very driven. Like I read almost every post on every, every comment on every post and every social channel. I, uh, I read any of the difficult, um, good and bad uh, emails we get in customer service. Um, I personally respond to many of them because that's why I built this thing. Um, and that doesn't mean we won't make mistakes or failures. Of course we will. Um, but it means like whether it's good or bad, whether it was a mistake or not, like I need to understand that very human experience from our customers and, and figure out how to connect with them because that is what fuels me. So, you know, if you ask specifically about creativity, my creativity comes from understanding my, my customers and their feelings. Most importantly, their feelings. You know, I was in our stores in New York and LA just at the weekend. And in each of them, there was a very specific consumer interaction, which just that will feed me for months to come, you know, um, because we watch we watch people's lives change. Like, yeah, I get it. It's fashion. And by the way, I hate fashion, but <laughs> it's it's more than that. It's self-expression. It's self-acceptance. And, and when you can do that for somebody, when you can 
allow them to love themselves, appreciate themselves and fully express themselves. You genuinely watch their whole life change. You know, they're, they're going to get their next job interview. They're going to get their next date. They're going to like everything just changes for them. Um, so my motivation and the energy that I feel and, you know, the drive that I feel and the creativity that I feel normally comes from an individual's human story or interaction with our brand. I love it. Emma, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, guys. One of the things that Emma touched on, uh, which I think is really important, whether you're a founder or or not, you know, no matter what you do, is making time for energy, creativity, inspiration, all that stuff. And it's really easy to dismiss that in a busy life. But I think that it's one of the ways that you can help build resiliency. Emma talked about learning from her customer and getting inspired by her customer, which is amazing. Also very extroverted. For me, I'm an introvert. I draw energy from alone time and I draw energy from writing. I love nothing more than to have two hours, you know, no email, no phone calls, don't see anybody but my cats to write. And I try to build that into my schedule because I know that for the long haul, it keeps me sustainable. And it's part of my resiliency training and it helps me with anxiety as well. So I just encourage you to think about, is there an hour each week that you can build into your schedule to do something that feeds your creativity, that feeds your energy? Um, No judgment. It can be watching TV. It can be reading fashion magazines. It can be looking at art, walking the streets, whatever feeds you, because that's important. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review my producer, Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. <laughs>